This is Gesher, the podcast that's bridging the gap between the Jewish and evangelical Christian communities with conversations that matter. Here's your host, Ty Perry, with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. Hello, everyone. I want to welcome you to this episode of Gesher, the third in a series of episodes on the various branches or movements of rabbinic Judaism. Today, we're going to begin with a conversation about Orthodox Judaism with Rabbi Simchat Tolwin. Rabbi Tolwin is a native of Detroit, Michigan. He studied at Yeshiva Beth Yehuda in Detroit, and then for seven years at Telshi Yeshiva in Cleveland, where he earned a Bachelor's of Talmudic Law. He then moved to Israel to study at the Mir Yeshiva and at Aish Jerusalem, where he received rabbinic ordination. In 1998, Simcoe went to work at Ace New York, where he launched and implemented innovative educational programs such as Speed Dating, Ace Connection, and a college outreach program in conjunction with Hillel. Today, he serves as rabbi at Ace Detroit in Oak Park, where he serves an estimated 800 families. He also has a master's degree in clinical counseling from Bellevue University. And Rabbi, I'm so honored to be able to talk with you today. Thank you for being with us. And thank you for inviting me on this show. Looking forward. Well, Rabbi, uh, listeners will know that we have, uh, I, I have interviewed uh, in the last few episodes rabbis from two different movements. We had Rabbi Joe Klein on speaking about Reform Judaism. Uh, we had Rabbi Aaron Bergman speaking of conservative. And I'm, I'm really excited to talk with you because theologically, uh, we, we have some differences, but we're probably the most similar of, of the various movements. Um, so I want to talk about Orthodox Judaism, the very word Orthodox uh, kind of tells us a little bit about what you believe, but where did this uh, Orthodox Judaism come from? How did it develop? The roots of Orthodox Judaism is the roots of every Jewish person. Uh, if you meet any Reformed Jew or conservative Jew, chances are their grandparents, great-grandparents, or great-great-grandparents were Orthodox Jews. Uh, Orthodox Judaism is, by definition, Torah Judaism, meaning Judaism that follows the laws of the Torah. Sure. So you don't take, like when we were talking to Rabbi Joe, um, he looks back to the Enlightenment period as kind of the beginning of the Reform Movement. The conservative movement uh, tries to, says, you know, the Reform went a little too far. Um, would you then trace your uh, your roots back to the time of the, the Pharisees and the development of, of Juda rabbinic Judaism post-Temple? Or how would you define that? Way before post-temple. Even before post-temple. Absolutely. The Jewish people became a nation 3,300 and something years ago mm -hmm. at Mount Sinai. At that moment at Mount Sinai, in the Sinai Desert, uh, the Jewish people, all 3 million Jewish people, heard God speak the words, I'm the Lord your God. So we're the only religion that is established on something called national revelation. Any other religion throughout history of the world is established on one person possibly hearing one prophecy and everybody else believing that yeah. prophecy. Judaism is based on this experience of Mount Sinai. Uh, and this is what Maimonides, the first, the greatest of the Jewish philosophers, tells us, that the basis of all Judaism is the Mount Sinai experience, where three million people heard God say, I'm the Lord your God, hear the rules. And that is the beginning of Judaism. Abraham, first Jew, but as a family, as a clan. When did we become the Jewish people? When we left Egypt and received the Torah at Sinai. So that mm. is the beginning of Judaism. That is Orthodox Judaism. Um, everything that followed 40 years in the desert, moving into the land of Israel after that. Uh, 500 years later, building the first temple. 400 years later, that temple is destroyed. There's a 70-year gap, and then another 400 years of temple. Uh, the post-temple period is, is well into our history already. Mm -hmm. Sure. So you're the, you're the old kids on the block, uh, theologically speaking, within 
Judaism. Within, within world religion, certainly. You know, yeah. the, you know, we talk about the beginning of Christianity is about 2,000 years, right? We're in the year 2024. Talk yeah. about Islam, which is even much newer than that. So, yes, we definitely uh, have some religious seniority. Yes, I, I would agree with that. Well, let's talk about Orthodox Judaism here in the U.S. Um, here in a, a couple of weeks, I'm going to be going to Brooklyn, uh, which I know is a, a hub of Orthodox uh, life, culture. How, has, how did Orthodox Judaism kind of develop here in the U.S., and how has it impacted uh, American society? So Orthodox Judaism is a fascinating story when it comes to the United States because uh, you mentioned earlier the emancipation, the Reform Judaism sees its roots in the emancipation late 1700s when you know the French Revolution said, hey, Jewish people, you could own land, you could go to universities, you could be like us. And some Jews said, hey, that's a great idea. We would love to drop our differences. Uh, the famous quote is, Berlin is our Jerusalem. Mm. The irony of that statement is shocking. Mm. Uh, any mention uh, in the reform movement of Israel was taken out of the prayer book because we're going to embrace this emancipation, this opportunity that's given to us. Orthodox Judaism said, wow, great opportunity. Let's own land. Let's own real estate. And you'll see a lot of incredible economic power in Brooklyn, but we're not going to change our differences. We're not going to change anything. So you're going to see guys in long black coats, big beard, pay us. You're going to see women with black skirts and, and head coverings running multi-gazillion dollar businesses. Because mm. we'll, we'll, we're going to take every opportunity, but we're not going to drop our differences. Because our very essence of what it means to be part of the Jewish people is to be a light unto the nations. And the way that we are a light unto the nations, we believe to our core, is to maintain our differences. Yeah. As soon as we become part of the melting pot, those differences are gone. What's so interesting is that in Europe, the shtetl, you know, the Jews were very, the Orthodox Jews were very discernible. When we came to the United States, what's so fascinating is that of all the denominations of Judaism, the Orthodox lost the most. Mm. Because think about Europe. We discussed that most people had Orthodox parents and grandparents. And that when people came to America, when the Jewish community came to America, most Orthodox Jews left Orthodox Judaism and assimilated, you know, this post-Holocaust tremendous national trauma mm -hmm. and became, whether it was reform or conservative, and whatever it was, they left Orthodox Judaism. A cliff. It was a complete demographic cliff. What's so fascinating is that that is, a, imagine like a V-shaped graph. So while there was a cliff, the miracle is that today it's shooting right back up. Mm. So Lakewood, New Jersey, which is another bastion of Orthodox Judaism, is the fastest growing city in New Jersey. Wow. It, is, it has doubled in, in population in the last 10 years, doubled. It is the financial capital of the world for healthcare finance. That means more companies dedicated to it, more people employed. This is all Orthodox Judaism. So the V-shape graph that we see is what one of the miracles of Orthodox Judaism in America is this incredible acceptance of the opportunity America provides while maintaining a very distinct and strong commitment to Torah values and Torah lifestyle. Yeah, incredible. Well, I want to talk about um, some of Orthodox Judaism's views on various topics. And one of the things I've learned uh, in talking with other rabbis and many of my Jewish friends is to say, what is the, the Jewish view, or the, in this case, the Orthodox view on XYZ? In some ways, it depends on who you talk to, I'm sure. But um, as it concerns the, the Torah, you were talking about the Torah and then and, and the broader the Tanakh itself. Um, as an evangelical and a conservative evangelical, I view the scriptures as inspired, meaning God breathed. He, he, these are his words. Um, within Judaism, broadly speaking, my, my understanding is that's not always the case. How do you view uh, 
the origin of Scripture and, and its authorship. So the origin of the Torah and its authorship is very clear and absolute uh, and it's part of our tradition for thousands of years and it's been proven. When I say proven, literally scientifically proven. And, this, and the, what Orthodox Jews know to be true is that the Torah is not inspired by God, but it is literally letter for letter dictated the word of God from God to Moses, mm. letter by letter. And that refers to the five books of Moses, and sometimes referred to as the Old Testament. Sure. When you get into Tanakh, when you get into the book of scriptures, there's different levels. So when you get into the book of Joshua, this is inspired. This is when you get into prophecy. Moshe's prophecy was different than any other prophecy. The key reason why Moshe's, Moses' prophecy was different than, let's say, Joshua's prophecy is because on some level we had to believe that Joshua was a prophet. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to believe that Moses was a prophet. God told us directly. So it's a very different situation. So Moses' prophecy um, is qualitatively different than any other prophecy because, A, we were told by God that Moses is my prophet, and, B, every prophet that ever existed, and there were thousands of prophets throughout history, only received the word of God in some type of meditative state or trance. It was only Moses who was able to receive the word of God face-to-face, the way you and I are having a conversation. Right. Because of that, the five books of Moses are qualitatively different. And so literally, letter by letter, every word of the Torah, every letter of the Torah, there's not a single letter that's extra. We will analyze and hyperanalyze why a word is spelled one way in the Torah this way and another place is spelled a different way. And not only will we analyze it, we will derive myriads of Jewish law from those nuances because every letter is the word of the letter of God. Mm-hmm. That refers to the, the Torah, the five books of Moses. And the same is true is for Tanakh, the, the Nevi'im, the words of the prophet, and the Ksuvim, the scriptures. Scriptures would be something like the scroll of Esther, uh, the story of Esther that's written that's also analyzed on, on the same level, but not that would be more inspired by God because it goes from God to Esther to us. So in your view, your understanding of inspiration would not be necessarily, a, a, as, I, if, as I would look at uh, the Torah, um, I would view that, yes, God did dictate that to him, and that is, it's God breathed out. It's it's inspired, maybe expired almost. Um, but you would see a difference between that level of inspiration, if you will, and as it's inspired in the, in the rest of the Tanakh. So, for example, if you read the Torah, which is sometimes referred to as the Old Testament, the Testament, it describes that when Moses was receiving this dictation from God, he would go into the tent of meetings, mm-hmm. the Ohel Moed. And we would know that's taking place because there was a cloud that always hovered over the tent of meetings, and that cloud would change form. Yes. It would start to rise. So we would know there was a dictation going on. After the dictation was completed, Moses would immediately step out of the tent and give over what he learned. Mm-hmm. So there was this very direct, real process. Should anyone ever question this process, the Torah itself, the, the Bible itself, dictates to us how to, how to authenticate this. And it says in one way, ask your parents. Mm. So the entire Judaism is based on ask your parents. Yeah. And at some point, if you know the Jewish people, you know we're quite critical <laughs> of everything. At some point, someone's going to ask their parents and say, did that really happen? Yeah. How come I never heard about this? Right? At what point was it made up and then all the parents agreed we're going to pretend like this happened? Right. Right? So it, it, it's, it's, um, it, the, 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 uh, the accuracy of the transmission is remarkable to the point where today you could have Jewish communities from across the globe spanning thousands of years have never interacted with each other and that scroll will be exactly the way it was. It will be exactly similar to another scroll. Mm. The scrolls that are written have to be written by hand, by a scholar, with certain f- letter formulations. If 
you have 3,000 people in synagogues reading the Torah in one synagogue, and it's the biggest event of the year, and they find a letter that's dripping too low below the line or too high that invalidates the letter, mm. they close the Torah reading and cancel the Torah reading for that week. My goodness. Because that is the level of detail that we ascribe to the Torah because the transmission must be absolutely accurate. Mm. We've all played the game of telephone and know that transmission could be dangerous. Right. But when you have that level of detail, you know that what you're getting is what they got 3,000 years ago. Yes, yes. And certainly when we find things like the Dead Sea Scrolls and things that we don't necessarily need to confirm our faith in the Scriptures, but they do affirm it, we see such slight variations that what you're saying is, is verified, certainly. Now, when it comes to the, the oral Torah, the oral law, um, I'm not sure that all my listeners would understand what that is. Could you just talk a little bit about what that is and where uh, where do we get that concept of oral sure. Torah? So, so the great societal misconception is that the oral law is the law that's made up by the rabbis. Okay. That is a misconception. The better way to look at it is described by Rabbi Samson Rafael Hirsch is that the Torah, the Bible, is actually just cliff notes to the laws. Hmm. Um, and the oral law is the expanded version. So, for example, in the Torah, in the Bible, it says you should place a totafot between your eyes. Hey, what's a totafot? Scan the entire Bible. It will never tell you what a totafot are. Now, you might know what it is. They're black. They're square. One goes between your eyes. One goes on your arm. It has four compartments. Each compartment has a different portion of the Torah, different uh, written on parchment, wrapped in special type of skin. Where does that get, come from? All the Torah says is totafot. Mm. How do we ever define the word totafot? The answer is that when Moses came out of the tent of meeting and said, here's totafot, and everyone said, what's that? And Moshe described it. Okay. That's oral law. Okay. Because it's not written, it's described. So, for example, it says there's a very serious uh, prohibition in the Torah of eating meat that is treif. What does treif mean? Treif means torn. What's tor so I can't tear it? So I could cut it? Like, what's tearing? Right. No description is given. So the oral law is the accompaniment that is an impossible to study the actual scripture without having an oral law. Mm -hmm. That's oral law. Mm -hmm. So with that, how would you... We understand that with the, with the Torah, as you're saying, it's, it's written down. There was that generation that could physically see the, the cloud. They knew when it was being given to Moses. Um, but with the oral Torah, it's not visible. Uh, so how do you confirm or how could you pass on to your children? Do you have to say, trust me, it was passed down. Uh, this is what Moses said three, 4,000 years ago. Or do you have something else that you look back to as, as confirmation or uh, Something you can back to with confidence that this is from God. So that's a fascinating question because you're right. Once it's oral, it's up for interpretation. Um, and the reason why it's oral is because the Torah is meant to be a living document. It's meant to be discussed teacher to student, father to son. It's not meant to be a library book that you go into. If you go into a Torah study hall, it's noisy. It's chaos. It doesn't sound like a library because Torah is meant to be off the page, not on the page. Sure. So how do we know that what we have is accurate? Um, there's many answers to that question. Um, one, and they're not different answers, but they all paint a picture. One is, anything for it to be legitimate oral law cannot contradict the basic tenets of Judaism. So someone says, I have an oral law that says there's no God. Mm. Yeah, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Right? It doesn't mm -hmm. work. Oh, I have an oral law that says that the Torah wasn't really given to, to Moses, it was given to five people, and they kind of figured it out. 
No. Right, so it cannot contradict the Bible, cannot contradict the Torah. Right. Second thing is there's a certain element of the oral law that is a question of does it, rep- does it stand withstand the test of time? We have traditions that have withstood the test of time. We know they're accurate. So, for example, a hundred years ago, if I was putting on my tefillin, my totafot, and there were black boxes, and you came over to me and said, how do you know that's what Moses wore? Like, come on, how do you know? Yeah. I'm like, actually, I don't know, but this is what my father put on, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, so show me where the break in tradition was, and maybe you're right, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Now, it happens to be that they found a pair of totafot from 2,000 years ago, and they look exactly, so that's outside verification, and that's exciting, but outside of that, I don't have any verification. Okay. But we know that it works, mm-hmm. and we know that the, the, the process for, for um, being able to have a checks and balance for what could be constituted oral law and whatnot is strictly in place. Sure. So if you ask somebody, well, how do you know that should be the law in the United States? Well, there was a court system, and they applied it, and it, that's what we have. It's written down. So that's what we have today, too. We have the Bible, and then we have a system for implementing oral law. A system is called the Mishnah, mm-hmm. the Talmud, the Codex of Jewish Law. It's been formulated. And we stick to it. Sure. I have a, a friend. He's a conservative rabbi, and he was on the show a couple of years ago. And as we were talking about uh, Judaism and Jewish identity, one of the things that struck me was that he said, you know, he said, Christians, uh, you're about the, the creed, and we Jews, we're about the deed. And I thought, eh, I, think, I think it's hard for creed and deed not to go together, I think, in both communities. But in his case, he said, you know, uh, I, I could have an atheist as a member of my congregation. Uh, what about in an orthodox shul? Could a, can you have a, a, someone who's orthodox and yet not believe that God exists? Is that possible? So uh, there's a couple things there in the question that have to be yeah. addressed. So first of all, orthodox Jews don't believe in denominations. Mm-hmm. In other words, the denominations are way past. So, so if you go to an orthodox shul... Everyone could daven in an Orthodox shul. Mm. So you have anyone and everyone davening there. And that means um, praying, right? Praying, for those yeah. who don't know. Thank you. Um, so it, it's, it's a completely, it's, it's, it's irregardless of what people believe. Come to shul and pray. No okay. problem. The question of, of belief, are we deed or creed? The answer is that Judaism is a religion of action, not a religion of belief. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, we don't have any beliefs that are that are going to be deal breakers as a Jew. So, for example, in, in Catholicism, you are not born a Catholic, you're baptized because you can't be born believing. In Judaism, you're born a Jew. Sure. Um, you could believe whatever you want, you're a Jew. That's just who you are. That's mm-hmm. the nation, that's, that's who you are. Irregardless of belief. We are religion more of action than belief. What that statement means is that very often reform conservative will say, hey, you know, Shabbat, it's the spirit of the Shabbat, not the observance of the Shabbat. That's important. That's incorrect. Uh, Judaism believes fundamentally that we are a soul. And the only way to perfect our soul is through action, not through thought. Mm. Spirit doesn't correct the soul. So if I want to have a soul that is corrected in a way that it'll say it's generous, I want to become a magnanimous, generous, kind person, so maybe I should meditate and think kind thoughts all day. Mm. And I'm no. The way the soul becomes kind is by doing kind actions. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we go this to such an extreme that Maimonides says, if you have $1,000 to give to charity, don't give one person $1,000. Give 1,000 people a dollar. Mm. 
Because that action will impact your soul. It's the action of giving that has an effect. I see. When we observe Shabbat, we, wanna, we observe it because it bears testimony that God created the world in seven days. In six days he worked, seventh day he rested. That action of observing Shabbat, it's a philosophy. We believe that God created the world in six days and seventh day he rested. But it's only the action of observing Shabbat that actually perfects our soul to this knowledge. To believe it is not enough. We have to celebrate it. As a matter of another way to think about this is the Hebrew word for faith is the same word as action. Mm. Emunah means faith. Uman is a craftsman. I see. Every act of faith that Jews have, we have an uh, action that supports it. So our fundamental belief is that God created the world in six days and seven days rested. We have an action called Shabbat mm -hmm. that supports that faith. Mm -hmm. So there is there is creed, but it's it's married to deed. Every every aspect of your creed is married to a deed. That's an excellent way to put it. Yeah. Let's move on to uh, the the idea of chosenness or this concept of chosenness. Um, many of my Jewish friends, uh, if I ever refer to them as chosen, a lot of them say, eh, let's, you know, I don't, I'm not real comfortable with that term. Um, how are, are you comfortable with that term? And I guess uh, that whole concept of chosenness, what role does that play in, in your thought? Yes, I'm very comfortable with the term because I understand what the term means. Some people have a misconception that says chosenness somehow means better. Mm. If I am chosen, I am better than you. Right. That's not what chosenness means. Uh, where do we get the chosenness means better? Japan, the sun rises only for us, mm. right? Mm -hmm. No, Judaism doesn't believe that. As a matter of fact, Judaism is the only religion that counts time by a world event, not by a Jewish event. Mm. We believe the world's 5,700 years old, not 2024. It's not a Jewish event. It's a world event. Mm -hmm. Judaism didn't start till 2,000 years later. We don't count it as time. Sure. You know, you talk about, you know, the, um, even America, the manifest destiny, right? Like, every society has this concept of chosenness to it. Right. Judaism has it as well. But we don't believe the chosenness relates to anything better. We may be better off because we have a full Bible. Some people might say, thank God I don't, right? <laughs> but we believe that we're bound by 613 commandments. But that's what we're chosen for. We were chosen as the select group of humans walking this earth that have to observe all of God's 613 commandments. So we were chosen for responsibility. Mm. Now, why were we chosen for responsibility? It's nothing I did. Mm -hmm. My grandfather happened to have been a good guy. His name was Abraham, and he cut a deal with God. God said, Abraham, I need help. The world does not know that I exist. They're serving trees. They're serving rocks. They're serving the sun. They're serving the moon. They forgot about me. So if you promise that your children will live a different type of life, observing the Torah, teaching the world about monotheism, and we've been successful in Christianity, Islam, Judeo-Christian religion. Sure. Then I guarantee I will do something for you. And Abraham says, really? What are you going to do for me? He says, two things. Number one, you will be an eternal people, which means that no matter what you do, you will always be eternal. Mm -hmm. And number two is, do you know the second? Well, I know he gives him, he's going to be a blessing to the, to the families of the earth. The second is that God says, I will give your children a land that will be exclusively theirs. Yes. Meaning, if they're there, it's going to be great. If they misbehave and have to be kicked out of the land, don't worry. It'll be sitting there waiting for them, mm -hmm. empty, mm -hmm. for them to come back to. And no one else will actually be successful in developing that land. 
And sure enough, of course, that land is the land of Israel. It's the only land in the world that a nation has been kicked out of and come back to reclaim, not yeah. once but twice. So that is direct result of God's promise to Abraham. So we're chosen, God chose Abraham for a very specific reason. You can read the story. And we're his descendants. Yeah. Now Abraham had Ishmael as well. Had Isaac, so there's you know where where the where the progeny went. That's you know up to debate. Right. Uh, we could discuss that uh, as well, but fundamentally that's what the, that's what the chosenness means. It means chosenness for responsibility, the responsibility to observe the entire Torah, all 613 commandments, for the purpose of being a light unto the nation to teach the world that there's one God. Yeah. Well, as as we would say in my church, Amen. Yeah, I agree with you, and uh, but I do think you know in that same passage, I'm thinking. Uh, Genesis 12, or Bereshit, um, in, in giving that call to Abram and, and giving him the land and the blessing. But there is also that concept of it's not, it's, it, you're not chosen simply for your sake. As, as you alluded to, you're to be a light into the nations. And he says there in that very last part of Genesis 3 uh, that he'll bless those who bless the Jewish Israel, uh, Abram, and he will curse those who curse them. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, and I certainly know as a as a Gentile, I have uh, been tremendously blessed by your people. And uh, one of the chief things is through the Word of God, and I'm thankful for that. So, Amen to that, Rabbi. Yes, thank you, thank you. And you know, I would say it's interesting because in the Reform movement and in the Jewish Federation, you hear the term often used called Tikkun Olam. Yes, Tikkun Olam means to repair the world. It sounds like social justice. They lopped off the second half of the sentence. The set full phrase is actually tikkun olam b'malchut shaddai, to rectify the world through the recognition of God. Mm. Now, of course, social justice brings people to God, but I point out something very significant. If I'm going to volunteer at Gleaner's Food Bank on Christmas, because I've got I don't have services on Christmas, mm-hmm. who's going to volunteer? I'll go volunteer. If I volunteer without wearing a keep on my head, then I am negating the entire purpose of my existence which is to say, hey, we're the Jewish people. I represent God in this world. Mm. So the verse that you alluded to in Genesis 12, and I'll take your word for it because I don't know the source <laughs> that well, that says that through you the nations of the world will be blessed, it means through the Jewish people God will be blessed. Yeah. Meaning that the Jewish people have to be clearly recognizable so that someone will say, oh, you're Jewish, bless you. Yeah. You know, my son, he's 18 years old, he's a cool kid, and he loves going to car meets. And I said to him, I said, Yoni, do you wear your kippah at car meets? Or do you like wear a cap? And he's going all over Michigan to car meets. And I was asking as a father, a little bit concerned for his safety. And I'm also sure. curious what type of son I raised. And he said, no, I always wear my keep. And I said, what's the reaction? I wear my religious you know, skull cap. He says, always positive. He says, people say, they, people say to me, and I forgot the cool expression that's used at car meets, something about like props to you or, or Creeds, something you kudos know, or something like more that. than kudos, something okay. like like power to you, you yeah. know, like yeah. respect the cap or something. You know, like <laughs> it's always positive, and and the idea is that if we're going to be a Jew and not be recognizably Jewish, then then God is not going to be blessed through us. Mm. Might be blessed in other ways, but to fulfill that, we have to be volunteering and doing what we do, being recognizably Jewish. And this gets into you know kind of the first question you asked me about this idea of emancipation. You know, the emancipation gives us great opportunity but we can't become dissolved into the society that we're in so that to the point where we're unrecognizable. Because really, to f- in, in what you're saying, to be uh, a blessing or to, to be a blessing to God by blessing the nations, you have to stand out by yep. the very definition. Um, 
can I just ask maybe just briefly when it comes to standing out, that's also had a negative side to it in terms of physically you stand out, people stand out and you've been persecuted for centuries. Um, do you think in your own life, does that ever keep you from wanting to stand out or do you view that as just, that's part of our, your role as part of the Jewish community? I'm fortunate. I was born in the United States, raised mm-hmm. in the United States, incredibly welcoming country. I have never um, felt like I had to hide my Judaism. I can't say that for anybody, you know, other people. Some people have experienced anti-Semitism in a more harsh way than I have, and then they feel scared. Uh, I know that in Europe, and if I were to travel to Europe, people tell me, do not, you know, walk around without a baseball cap. Sure. It's unfortunate. Personally, you know, here I, you know, I, I do wear my kippah, and I'm recognizably Jewish wherever I go. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, when it comes to the Messiah, um, I talked to, as I said, Reform Rabbi doesn't necessarily believe that there's actually a Messiah, maybe a Messianic age. Um, what's your view on, on the Messiah? Is there is there one Messiah? Are there multiple Messiahs? Is, is it an age? So Maimonides defines the 13 principles of Jewish faith. One of those principles is that we believe firmly in the coming of Messiah. Mm. What that means is that the Jewish people have a vision for utopia. That vision is three things. World peace, universal recognition of one God, and number three is the Jewish people living in the land of Israel. Mm-hmm. That's, that's utopia. Someone said, what's the vision? What will bring about utopia? Through the Messiah. The Messiah's mission, his job will be to bring the world to the state of utopia. When will that happen? It might happen in a minute from now. Mm. Our obligation as a Jew is to believe it will happen in any minute. Will there also be a Messianic era? The Talmud does describe the, an era of the Messiah. Um, what it looks like. That could have been 100 years ago, it could have been 500 years ago, it could have been 1,000 years ago. Certainly there's elements of today that make it seem like a messianic era. Mm. Um, some people ascribe the fact that the Jewish people are living in Israel as a sign of a messianic era. I do not know if it is or is it not. I don't, I don't, just don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely feel that Israel, and we'll, we'll talk about Israel a little bit, is definitely a, an issue. Um, some people feel the fact that there's a lack of... Uh, moral clarity in the world is a, the sign of a messianic era. Mm-hmm. Uh, another element of messianic era is a lack of strong leadership. You know, we're, we're going to have presidential elections and it might be Trump versus, uh, versus Biden. And I know for myself, I'm thinking maybe I'll just stay home. Yeah, me know? too. <laughs> and th- that means there's a lack, and, and the Talmud describes the messianic era mm-hmm. being a time when there's a lack of leadership. Mm. Um, and uh, so, so there are elements of the time we live in now that feel like the messianic era, but the idea of there being a, mess, a messiah, a person who is going to be responsible to bring this, the world to a state of utopia is one of the core 13 principles of belief that Maimonides lays out for every single Jew. Now, I'm interested because you're talking about the Messianic era. From an from a evangelical perspective, as I would see that, the things you're listing in my theology would be uh, kind of the, the the birth pangs that the prophet Jeremiah speaks of or the time of Jacob's trouble, these things that were leading up to that era. But in your view, you would view those as uh, they're all part of the era itself? That's an excellent question. How to define when one era ends and one era begins, is I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a topic of great conversation. Mm. Um, are these descriptions of this 
what I'm describing these like three examples of messianic era are things the times that are the confusing times that lead up to the coming of Messiah. I see. Why does Messiah have to come through confusing times? Why can't he come through times of strength? That's another topic of conversation. Why mm-hmm. can't it be like Messiah will come? You know, one place in the Talmud it says that the Messiah will come when every single Jew observes two Shabbats in a row. Okay. Like, is that literal? Is it not literal? What does it mean observe? Well, I make Kiddush, but I don't do the whole 24 hours. Does mm-hmm. that count? Like, I don't know. That sounds like a positive, you know, wow, the whole Jewish people gave me two in a row. That sounds like unbelievable. Yeah. And that, so, you know, so it, it why does it have to be a negative? Why can't it be a positive? There's, there's a co- description of, of birth pangs, like a birth, and there's like the contractions. That that's, there has to be some difficulty that the world goes through. I don't know why. There's other errors as well. There's an error called the, of the resurrection of the dead. You know, that comes afterwards. Does that come before, after? When exactly does that happen? How long does it take? I'm not that familiar. Sure. I don't know. Sure. Okay. I would say that that is a matter of of faith in the sense that, you know, I could tell you with knowledge that God, that God exists. God wrote the Torah. The question of how the Messiah will function and work, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. I appreciate that. The, you know, the question of, of a Jesus being a Messiah, yeah. or um, the the Chabad movement here, and you know, dealt with this. They very there's elements in the Lubavitch movement that describe the Rebbe that passed away a number of years ago as the King Messiah, Melech Mashiach, Schneerson for, Schneerson, for this right. word. For and, and they're they're dealing with the same issue that Christianity dealt with, which is that in our tradition and and the Jewish people invented the concept of the Messiah. The Messiah doesn't die, mm. and so what do you do with the dead Messiah? Mm-hmm. So in Christianity, you have a second coming. Okay, possibly we, mm-hmm. not part of our tradition, but we, you know, Christian tradition. Sure. So what is you know what did the Jewish Nerison? He died. So they have a video camera on his tomb, and they say, well, he's coming back. You know, I don't know. You know, it yeah. sounds more like Christian than, than Jewish. Right. So, but you know, ultimately, um, we believe that the Messiah absolutely did not come yet. Mm-hmm. He might be walking amongst us, but not revealed himself. Uh, but he def- definitely is not someone that we could point to and say he was the Messiah, but then he died or changed his mind or you know, yeah, dropped out of the race or something. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Isaiah chapter 53, certainly a passage that, that I would look to as, as messianic, um, but how do you look at, how do you view that or interpret that passage? Um, I view it as Messiah, he's, he suffers and dies for the sins of Israel and the sins of the world, and yet he will see his offspring seems to be a resurrection, certainly not as clear as we would see in the New Testament, but how would you view that? We just lost a, a great scholar. He was 99 or 100 years old. He was the dean of a yeshiva in Bnei Brak, Israel. Mm. And any time a righteous person passes away, Jewish philosophy to its core believes that the passing of any great human being acts as a atonement for the generation. Mm. In other words, let's, let's take God's perspective for a second. God looks down at the world and says, boy, these people are messing up. i got to punish them all. I can't punish them all. It's just not... It's too hard. Everyone's gonna be in such pain. I'll just take one, and that'll serve as a punishment for the generation. Okay. So that's and, that, and that's you know again Isaiah fifty three. That I'm telling you basic Jewish philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 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 actually f- and we treat that for almost every Jewish person that passes away at a funeral. We have something called a melitz yosher. The deceased should be a proper emissary. Like you've been transitioned to the next world, so you're closer to God and mm. talk on our behalf and. You know, let let you know you invoke forgiveness for our sins that maybe you had to die for. Mm. We look at a child that passes away. Part of the comforting process is understanding that this child took took a, took a hit for the team, so to speak. Mm. Okay, makes sense. When it comes to Jesus of Nazareth, uh, you kind of alluded to this. Certainly, you don't believe he was the Messiah. Um, do you believe he existed? And I guess if so, 
what what classification would you give him in Jewish thought? There is no contradiction to Jewish philosophy to believe that Jesus existed. Mm-hmm. Great, he existed. There is no contradiction in, to Jewish philosophy to think to say that God that Jesus walked on water. As a matter of fact, if a hundred people saw him walk on water, he probably did. <laughs> and Maimonides tells us that this is one of the core philosophical differences between Judaism and every other religion of the world. We do not base our belief on miracles. Hmm. Period. We believe our faith is based on one thing only. God speaking to us and telling us, I am God, Moses is my prophet. Mm. That's it. Mm -hmm. Like, you know Jewish people, you have Jewish friends. We are skeptical. (laughs) If somebody walks in right now and says, I'm God, I'll be like, no, you're not. Like, I'll prove it. I'm like, I don't, sure, go ahead, prove it. And he like waves a sword in the air and blood falls down. I'll be like, that's super cool. You're not God. Well, then how did I do it? I have no idea. Yeah. You're not God. How do you know I'm not God? Because God has no form. Mm. Mm-hmm. And God's not going to come and talk to me and wave a sword and make blood come out of the sky. It's just not going to happen. It's not God. Sure. It's not godly. It's not God. So how'd you do it? I have no idea. Do you know black magic? Maybe. Are you able to perform miracles? Maybe. By the way, if someone says to me, I'm a prophet of God, you know what a Jewish reaction to someone who says they're a prophet is? You know, biblically, you have to, you have to prove it. Exactly. Prove it. And the guy says, okay, I'll prove it. Tomorrow morning at 6.59 p.m., three white cars will drive by. And sure enough, at 6.59, three white cars drove by. Is that proof? No. The proof has to be very, very specific. Right. Unpredictable, right? And then if they prove themselves as a prophet and then say something which contradicts the Bible, they're out. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a very strong system for what makes it for prophecy, what does make it for prophecy. Sure. Um, so... Does, does it contradict Jewish philosophy to think Jesus exists? Absolutely not. Does it contradict Jewish philosophy to say Jesus walked on water? Absolutely not. That's great. Does it contradict Jewish philosophy to say Jesus created an amazing religion? Absolutely not. And that's why no Jew will ever tell a Christian to become Jewish. Mm. We're not an evangelical religion. Mm-hmm. As Jews, we believe that every single person should practice the religion they were born mm. with the condition that they believe in God. So don't pray to a rock as the emissary to God. Right. Go straight to the God. Right. Okay. Appreciate that. I want to probably wrap it up with this, but when it comes to the state of Israel, uh, I'm, I'm certainly a Zionist. Many of our listeners, Christians and, and Jewish people are Zionists. Um, what's your view on Israel and the state of Israel and uh, maybe also its role? Do you see it as a fulfillment of God's promises to your people? I love the state of Israel been there six times in this calendar year Mm. um i have hundreds of nieces and nephews and first cousins that live in israel and i'm a very strong zionist the dean of the school i went to um, moved to israel and when he circumstances forced him to come back to the school he said i'll come excuse me i'll come back and be part of the school but i will never live in a home again in america he lived in our dormitory really with his wife was a Zionist, and that's the philosophy that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. I'm a very strong Zionist. I do believe that the state of Israel is a double-edged sword for the Jewish people. It represents an incredible opportunity. Jewish philosophy teaches us that there's one thing that God cares about more than anything else, and that is the Jewish people getting along. And we could source that in a thousand different ways. And today, unfortunately, Israel is a source of tremendous conflict internally for the Jewish people. This is incredibly painful. Mm. 
I was recently on a federation trip to Israel, and there was the conflict was discussed. I never discuss the conflict when I go to Israel. I am very proud to say I'm the I'm the ostrich with his head in the sand. I will only discuss the beauty of Israel. I will never discuss the conflict. Um, and I believe that our responsibility, um, because we have the state of Israel as Jews, is to figure out a way to get along mm. at all costs. Mm-hmm. And that's why you don't discuss the the trouble. I, I don't discuss the trouble because I believe that Israel has a spiritual opportunity for Americans going to Israel, and I don't want that message clouded by conflict. I see. So it, it, the conflict exists. Fine, let's find a way to get along. But that's not why we're here. We're here to learn about why Israel matters. Mm-hmm. Too many Jewish people today have no idea that Israel was promised us, and it's by God, to Abraham. Right. And the fact that there's a miracle, people give it lip service. But to understand the historical miracle of the Jewish people returning to the land of Israel is remarkable. Now in Deuteronomy 28, um, uh, you, know, you have this list of curses. You're kind of talking about that blessing for, for mm-hmm. obedience and uh, cursing being taken out of the land, but it's still theirs. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, you have uh, the promise that, but I will return you. Do you view uh, the modern return to Israel and the establishment of the state of Israel I don't know if you'd use this terminology, but fulfillment of that or somehow connected to the biblical proclamations that the Jewish people would return? Or do you see it as purely, secu- purely it, secular? No, it, it's absolutely related to the proclamation, but not necessarily the proclamation that you're mentioning. Okay, It's related to the biblical proclamation that God says that the only people that will ever settle the land of Israel are the Jewish people. Mm. So the fact that we're, I mean, the green line, heard of the green line, mm-hmm. It's the green line because the green side is the Jewish side. They managed to make it green, and the other side is the not Jewish side. Like, yeah. how does that exist in the world? A place, a land that only responds to a people? Right. That's insane. That just doesn't, it doesn't exist yeah. anywhere in the world. So that's the miracle of the state of Israel. So, so Israel, yes, represents the biblical proclamation of a land that only responds to the Jewish people. Mm. The Jewish people could be kicked out of it. We could be kicked out of it tomorrow. That will not have any impact on my Jewish philosophy. It may have an impact on other religions' philosophies about how they see Israel, but I believe it's entirely possible that we will not be in the land of Israel in three, four, five years mm. if we keep on fighting each other the way we are now. It's possible. Yeah. But here's the good news. It will not change our faith one iota because we know we'll be back. Yeah. If God forbid it should ever, ever happen. It's happened already twice in our history. And we were more established then than we are that now. Now right. it's like, well, how could Israel cease to exist? I mean, it did twice already right. when we came back. So it has. N- so the proclamation that it uh, that it represents is the proclamation, the commitment that God gave the Jewish people that Israel belongs to the Jewish people. Mm. I want to just close with this. Aside from the Torah, is there a book or an author that has particularly influenced your life, whether it's your theological views or your philosophy of life? Is there a a text or an author that has influenced you that way? I cannot point to a s- particular text or author. I read the Wall Street Journal every day. <laughs> I, I love reading um, I love reading business books. Mm-hmm. But the books that really strike me are any books about the hi- modern history of Israel. Because mm-hmm. uh, in particular, a book called The Prime Ministers by, um, I forgot the name of the author right now. He passed away. He was uh, from cancer a number of years ago. But the book was actually made into a movie as well. The movie's, of course, not as good. Go okay. with the book. Uh, it's a very thick blue book. And it, and the reason why is because Eleanor Roosevelt, I think, said the essence of rhythm is the silence in between. Mm. Look at the story of Israel, but the silence in between, the incredible 
hand of Hashem, hand of God, that is interacting with us constantly, becomes very apparent when you read seemingly secular books about the modern state of Israel. So those those books always inspire me. Well, Rabbi Tolman, I want to thank you for coming on Gesher today, and uh, I'm certainly uh, one of those Gentiles who's extremely grateful for your people, and uh, thank you for, for all you do, and thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me on the show. You've been listening to Gesher, a ministry outreach production of FOI Equip, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. To learn more, visit foiequip.org. And for more information about Thai, visit foi.org forward slash Perry. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom.